Yeah, absolutely. What a great story that is from Joe and something that some of you guys might know, but I was emailing back and forth with Joe and he mentioned that for the first several years of his ministry in Indianapolis, that this church was the only church who supported him and just how appreciative he was of that. And um, I thought that was a, a really cool story. Um, and also a good reminder, you know, we did the My Circle training in February, and the big focus of that training is the circle of influence we already have. And with the young man that, uh, that Joe was telling us about who invited his sister and invited his friends, people he knows who don't know the Lord and bringing them with him. And that's a great place to start. Uh, people who are in our own families, in our own uh, workplaces in our own sphere of influence, people with whom we are regularly interacting and uh, share the good news with them, to share the love of Christ with them, to be faithful witnesses to them. Uh, we'll be in First Samuel 8 today. I'll get to that in just a moment if you want to start turning there. Uh, baptisms last week was a great baptism service. Um, and if, if you didn't get baptized, again, no shame, but I would love to talk to you about that. If you're somebody who's never been baptized and maybe you're feeling like, ah, I should have said something, talk to me. We will find a time um, and we'd love to have a conversation about that. First Samuel chapter 8, and we'll be in the passage today, the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards to give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard the words of all the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for some rain this morning, and continue to pray for that, and for good weather as plants are growing, crops are growing in the ground, Lord. And we just want to trust all of that to you, Lord. We pray for Liz Jurgler in the hospital. We pray that they can find some quick answers to her health ailments, Lord, and uh, just pray for her to have a speedy recovery and bounce back. And Lord, we just thank you so much for Liz and what she has meant to this church. Lord, we pray for a full recovery for her. And again, just uh, for the doctors and nurses who are treating her. Lord, we pray for our time today as we start a new series from the book of 1 Samuel. Lord, we thank you for this book, another book from your word, Lord, that is pointing us to you, pointing us to truth, pointing us to the gospel. And Lord, so we pray that we can be encouraged and transformed as we study these passages. Also, Lord, we do want to pray for Joe Snyder, who we just saw a video of, for him and Young Life in South Indianapolis and for kids that they're reaching, Lord. And we just pray for a fruitful ministry and for opportunities to share the gospel and for the kids who are part of that ministry and for friends that they bring. Lord, we pray that they would... Bring more and more people to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. People know I'm a sports fan, and it can be easy to be disappointed in your teams. Because at the end of the season, there's only one champion. And more often than not, that's not your team. Some teams wait years or decades to win titles. Some never have. Maybe a team that you like in a sport has had a down year or a down few years, and you start to think about the coaches. And you think, this guy's terrible. We need a new coach. But sometimes the coach isn't the issue. Wanting to get a new coach can be an easy fix. You can't get rid of the whole team. You can fire a coach. But so often the new coach doesn't seem to do much better than the old coach. Because sometimes the issue isn't the coach. Sometimes the issue is the entire organization and the poor culture and the owner who won't spend money and a front office who's inept. And when everything else is bad, there's only so much that even a good coach can do. We can do that in life sometimes. We can be reactionary and constantly wanting to change things. You look around a bookstore, one of the biggest sections you see is self-help books. For a person who's not rooted in anything, they can be susceptible to drifting around and going from one idea to another, one philosophy to another, one life coach to another, one guru to another, all the while just spinning the wheels. I've seen people do that with faith. Someone grows up, maybe they didn't grow up in the church at all, or maybe they came from a nominally religious household. And then they start following the ways of the world. And they become miserable and disillusioned and unhappy. And they meet some Christians, or they start going to church, or they start focusing on faith. And they like that for a while. But then something happens. Maybe they were misguided and thought that everything would be easier now that they're a Christian. Maybe they thought they wouldn't have the same struggles and problems. Maybe they go through a really difficult personal struggle or tragedy in family or personal life. 
The false gospels of the world can become more and more appealing. The church becomes less and less appealing. I've seen people go full circle from being people who were not walking with the Lord, people who were not Christians, to being part of a church, to leaving the church and sometimes not even considering themselves to be Christians, sometimes not even considering themselves to be someone who believes in God anymore. And they keep searching. Searching for what it is that will bring them hope or purpose or meaning. On to the next thing. When things aren't going well spiritually, or when life isn't going the way we feel like it should, we can face this temptation to think that we need to make a change of who's leading our lives. In our passage this morning, the Israelites decided that they wanted to make a change. God was on the throne, the glorious and gracious Lord, But Israel decided that he wasn't what they wanted. And they asked instead for an earthly king to rule over them. They thought that taking God off the throne would somehow lead to better results. Teams can change coaches. That may or may not go well. But when we go away from God, that will always lead to misery and death. This morning, we're starting a series from the book of 1 Samuel on the rise and fall of the first king of Israel, a man named Saul. From some early successes, he quickly falls into sin and has a dynasty that is doomed and will only last one generation. But before we get to Saul's story, we begin in 1 Samuel 8, which is the precursor to Saul's kingship. In this chapter, Israel doesn't yet have a king, but the people speak up and demand that they get one. And the main idea of the passage this morning is to, is to not look for earthly kings when we have a heavenly king. And for the Israelites in this text, we're going to see three things. A desire, a warning, and a decision. Beginning with a desire. Now, as I've said, the Israelites decide that they wanted a king. To give a little bit of background, Samuel after whom the books of First and Second Samuel are named, was an Israelite prophet, but he was also a political leader and someone who served as a judge in military matters. Highly influential, but he wasn't a king. He wasn't the head of the entire nation. This comes at a time in Israel's history when the Israelites had been in the promised land for a couple generations, and it's a coalition of tribes, and there isn't a centralized government. There isn't one person who's in charge. Think of the book of Judges. You have these figures who are leaders called judges, not so much of a courtroom type judge, but they're the leaders. But they're not kings. Like Samuel, they don't lead the entire Israelite people. Now, the idea of a king was not totally foreign for the Israelites. Before they entered the promised land, God had talked of a future where there would be kings. But the idea was for a theocracy where there would be a human king ruling in accordance with God, the ultimate king. In fact, there are places in Deuteronomy that talk about the qualities this king should have. In some ways, it would have made sense to want a king, to want one person who would have influence over the entire empire. But again, the Israelites already had that. God was the true king of Israel. God had ruled over Israel. He had led them to victories. He had miraculously led them out of slavery in Egypt. He had done the impossible. He had provided for his people as they wandered in the desert. He had brought them to the land. 
Everything the Israelites had in life was because of what God had provided for them and done for them. And as we look at this passage, the real heart of why the Israelites wanted this, why they wanted a king, was because they wanted to be similar to the other nations. But God hadn't chosen Israel. He hadn't brought them out of slavery. He hadn't given them this land just so they could be like all the other nations. And it's the same way with us, with the gospel. That we are desperately sinful. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we come to him in desperate need. He is gracious to forgive us. God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But Jesus doesn't save us so that we can continue to have the same struggles. Just so we can look, live, and act like everyone else around us. Jesus transforms hearts and minds and souls and lives. The Israelites were a people who had fallen into idolatry. They had worshipped other gods. They had been disobedient. They had repeatedly, repeatedly violated the laws of God. And here they have a desire to change the whole system. They want an earthly king to rule over them. And again, while the idea of a king wasn't inherently sinful... We will see in this text that Israel's motivations for wanting a king were sinful. Now Samuel is getting on in years. He has two sons, the text tells us, Joel and Abijah, who are set to replace him. But there's a problem. But that will jump into verse 3. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So Samuel is a great man. His sons are not. I'm sure you've seen that before with people you've known. And we have an issue. Beginning in verse 4, a council needs to review the situation. They look at Samuel's sons who are going to replace him, and they see how rotten they are, and they don't want them to have the influence. And they ask Samuel to give them a king, just like all the other nations, as verse 5 will tell us. The text says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now it's a little bit ironic that Samuel, that they don't want Samuel's sons to replace Samuel. They want a king instead. Despite the fact that if you have a king, that he can have heirs who are also wicked and sinful and who will not lead well. They point to the fact that the other nations have kings. That's why they want one. It's almost like a stereotypical conversation between a teenager and a parent. But all my friends are doing it. But all the other kingdoms are doing it. They all have kings. But their kings are corrupt. They're pagan nations. They're not God's chosen people. In verse 7, when Samuel has prayed to God, the Lord tells him that the people have not rejected Samuel, that they've rejected God himself. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And again, God's people are called to be different. During the Exodus wanderings, the word of the Lord comes to the people, and God says in Leviticus 20.26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. 
But here, the Israelites want to be like all the other nations. I think that we too can sometimes want something that isn't inherently bad, isn't inherently sinful, but why we want it shows a heart that is sinful. Sometimes people can want to do something that's good, but for a motivation that's maybe not so good. Perhaps you've done something nice for a person before, but the reason wasn't really altruism. It was because you wanted them to owe you in the future. Or perhaps you've said something nice to a person, and it was just to butter you up. I remember one time in high school, walking into class, and the girl said, You look nice today, Josh. And that boosted my ego. And she had just broken up with her boyfriend who was also in the class. And somebody goes, she's just trying to make him jealous. Sometimes we can say nice things, but for the wrong reasons. In 2007, the New York Times did a survey of owners of the Toyota Prius, the hybrid car with low emissions that gets gas mileage of up to 50 miles per gallon. In the survey, they tried to find the biggest reason why people were buying the Prius. Now, if you had to guess, what was the number one reason? Was it lower emissions? No. That was the fifth most popular reason. Was it about the amazing gas mileage? Which, today, seems like a pretty good reason. No, that was the third most popular reason. There were different tax incentives and credits for buying this efficient car. That was the second most popular reason. The number one reason, according to the article, it makes a statement about me. So the number one reason people wanted this car wasn't because they cared about the efficiency of the car. It was that they cared about people thinking that they cared about the efficiency of the car. And if that isn't the spirit of our age, not actually caring, just caring that people think that you care. Nothing wrong with that car. But wanting it because it's a status symbol is a bit silly. We can be fickle. We can care about our image and what others think of us. We can want certain things which aren't inherently bad, but want them for bad reasons. I know when a person is single and wants to be married, marriage can become an idol. Marriage is a good thing. It's given to us by God. But if we look at it as something that will totally fulfill us and give our lives meaning, we can make an idol of it. It's not a bad thing, but we can distort it. People can do that with accomplishments. Maybe a certain degree someone is striving for. Maybe a certain job that someone has spent years working for, paying their dues to get to. Not bad things. Ambition isn't a bad thing. But it's wanting a good thing for bad reasons when we think that that is what will make us happy. That is what will give us life and purpose. The great NFL quarterback Tom Brady once said something truly fascinating in an interview with 60 Minutes. Brady has won seven Super Bowls. This was several years ago at a time when he just had won three. In the interview, Brady says, I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater for me. Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream. Brady says, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? The interviewer asks him, what is it? Brady says, I wish I knew. Nothing wrong with being a great quarterback. 
And I've heard similar types of quotes before from other famous athletes, famous actors, who reach the top, who get to their dreams. And yet, it still feels not quite as fulfilling as they thought it would be. It's because accomplishments and personal goals are not the meaning of life. And they're not the things that will give us true purpose. Brady has lived most men's dream. He has seven Super Bowls, more than any other player. No one else even has six. Put that in perspective, the NFC North, which has the Bears, Packers, Lions, and Vikings, total have won five Super Bowls. Brady by himself has won more than those four teams throughout their history. He's handsome. He's incredibly wealthy. He's married to a supermodel. He's the greatest football player of all time. And yet he knows that there's something more. He's like the modern-day Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes. All of it is vanity. And none of it leads to the true life that God has for his people. Because nothing can lead to true life apart from God himself. For the Israelites, they began with a desire. They want a king to rule over them. That was their vision of flourishing. They thought a king would be the one to make their lives better. But they wanted the king over the Lord. Even today, sometimes we do this. We put trust in a person over our trust in God. Most prominently, right now in the current climate, we can do this with politics. We can look to people being our hope. Certainly there's nothing wrong with taking an interest in politics or what's happening in society. But it is a problem when we make a person out to be our hope. When we trust in men. Because God is still the king. In the Old Testament, we constantly see God sovereignly working through the nations and through time to achieve his will. God moves the kingdoms of the world at his pleasure. We might not covet a king the way the Israelites did, where they wanted a literal king. But far too often we can look at a leader as though they are the key. And they are not. God did not stop being God between the time of the Israelites And today, wanting someone in office because you think he or she has good policies. Again, that's one thing. But it's entirely different from making the belief that we need that person. Because then that becomes idolatry. And there is no man or woman who is our hope. The Lord is our only hope. And it is he who is the king who sits on the throne. Don't look to earthly kings. When we have a heavenly king. We come to our second scene. A warning. God will allow for the Israelites to have the king that they want. But not without warning them first. Samuel is called to tell the Israelites of what the consequences will be. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So already it's setting the tone. There will be things that the people will have to give up. They didn't have a king. And so they weren't beholden to an earthly leader. That will change. There's irony. They want a king who's a military leader. But part of the cost of that is that the men are going to be drafted into the army and have to fight. Verse 12. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest 
and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. It's interesting they keep saying his, like it all belongs to this king. It'll be his ground, his harvest. It won't be the people's. Vast numbers of men are going to be needed to serve in this Israelite military under this king. Verses 13 and 14. He will take your daughters. Men are not the only ones who will have to serve. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So not only will the people be serving and giving of themselves, they will also be sacrificing the best of what they have at the feet of this king. Verses 15 through 17. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. They want a king because they think it will lead them to freedom. And it's actually going to lead them to slavery. God will, that they will have a tenth of their grain taken. They hadn't been paying taxes. And as you read the Old Testament, you realize that the situation with Israel and their spending and taxes gets worse and worse and worse throughout Israel's history. They think that bringing a king would bring them security. It won't. They think it will bring them prosperity. It brings the opposite. Because they're turning away from the security of the true king. You can see that it's getting worse and worse as you read the text. Have you ever given someone advice and there were just overwhelming reasons not to do something and then they do it anyway? Like it just makes absolutely no sense and they still just go ahead and whatever the common sense thing is, like I'm going to just run the opposite direction. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have probably also been guilty of being that person at one time or another in our lives. The text says of the people that you shall be his slaves. Again, they are selling their collective souls for relief. And they don't need to. They don't need to do any of it. They have God. And so do we. And yet we so often look to things besides God for our relief, for our joy, for our pleasure, and for our fulfillment. Don't look to earthly kings when we have a heavenly king. Verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's not to say that the Lord will stop being the Lord of Israel. Or that he will stop caring about his people. But the text is warning the people that they will face struggles for choosing this route. They haven't yet brought it on themselves. Because of his grace, God gives them this warning. He tells them, he shows them the future of where things are going. It's like at the end of a Christmas carol, or towards the end of a Christmas carol, where Ebenezer Scrooge is given a vision from the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And he sees the miserable death he will die, and loneliness, and he decides to turn from that and make a change. The Israelites, too, are given their own picture, their own glimpse of what their future will look like. And they decide to keep on going that direction. They don't listen. It says something pretty profound about the sinfulness of our heart. We can be warned and told about 
how unwise something is, what the terrible consequences will be, and choose it anyway. And that's not just to hammer the Israelites. Again, because we can do things like that too. When there's every reason to believe God or to listen to God, when we know that it's his wisdom and will for us to do one thing, and we say, I want to be my own king. Often for us, the king we want is ourselves. We want to be on the throne of our lives. We want to say, my kingdom come, my will be done. Don't look to earthly kings when you have a heavenly king. And don't look to yourself when you have the true king. And so God tells Samuel to give the people what they want. And I think God does that sometimes too in our own lives. Just like how a parent can sometimes let a kid do what they want, even though it's unwise, a child not wanting to bring a coat. Parents decide they're not going to fight a war over it. And the kid gets cold, facing the natural consequences of the decision. God isn't haphazard with this. He's not being catty with them. He's giving the people what they want. Do you want a king? Here's your king. You want to live a life that's focused on you? You want to focus on what brings you pleasure? You want to focus on just making money? Fine. You might even have some success in an area, at least for a season. But it will not ultimately lead to your flourishing. Going against God will never ultimately lead us to peace or fulfillment. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly at anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. Or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. The people had it explained to them what would happen. But God was ultimately going to allow for them to have a king. In the book of Proverbs, it talks a lot about the the fool, the person who lives a life in opposition to the wisdom of God. The chief way a person can be a fool is failure to fear the Lord. We do this when we take God off his throne. Examples of foolishness, Proverbs 13.20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Proverbs 28.26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And in this passage, the Israelites were trusting their own minds, their own desires and will. And again, there are many examples of this in the book of Proverbs. But Israel will live out the foolishness and their decision to take a king. They are going against the wisdom of God. And the chief way they're doing this is their failure to fear the Lord And to honor him above all else. Had they done that, they would have realized that they hadn't needed a king. They had everything that they already needed in God. The best way to know the will of God is to know his word. There are things we can do which are totally contrary to the wisdom of God. For the Israelites, it had been explained to them why a king is not going to be good for them. And they wanted it anyway. 
And again, we can do that too. We can have all the reasons to know something will not be good for us and decide to do it anyway. The Bible has wisdom in regards to how to manage our households, our finances, our health, our rest, our language. It's in our best interest to get with that program, to live for God, to follow his wisdom. So often we choose not to. Sometimes we even know better. Sometimes we even know what God's word says about something and decide to do our own thing anyway. It's so easy to let the ways of the world influence us more than we are influencing the world. We we might not be asking for a literal earthly king, but again, we so often want another God. We so often look to the areas of our lives where we feel like we should be flourishing more. Now, because of his goodness, God insisted that the Israelites be warned about what they were doing. He told them it wouldn't work well. We, too, receive warnings in God's word. The heart of the issue isn't just about wanting a different king. It was putting something over God. And any time we choose to go against God, to go against his word, we're putting ourselves on the throne. Is there something that you don't have right now? But where you think to yourself, if only I had this, everything would be better. Or they would be truly happy. Never replace the true king. The issue is when we buy into the lies of what objects or things or relationships can give us. And place those on a pedestal above God. And true fulfillment and purpose and grace And the life that comes from him, that there is a price to be paid for wanting to make that change. We come to our third scene. I'll be brief. We see a decision. The people make their choice. They ignore the warnings. Verses 19 and 20. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us. And fight our battles. Even though they've already been told that they're going to have to fight their own battles. In this chapter of the story, it doesn't tell us too much about the results. But upon continuing to read the Old Testament, again, the things that Samuel had warned about come to pass. With the advent of the monarchy, it does institute high taxes, losses of land, more wars. And the kings weren't there to fight the battles for them. And those problems would continue to spiral and get worse and worse from one generation to the next. Isn't that what happens in our lives too? When we decide to go against the wisdom of God, there are consequences for that. They might be external. They might be in our environment. But they will always also be internal. Our sins are putting things ahead of God. Our living life as though a new king or a new source of purpose is going to fulfill us. And when we do that, it chips away at our relationship with God. There's a similar type of situation happening in Psalm 81. Verses 11 and 12 says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. God does allow us to make bad decisions. Because... It is sometimes through the bad decisions and struggles that we see that there was 
never any other way besides God's way all along. God is the one true king. He is to be the king of your life. It's not about looking elsewhere when we're struggling. In spite of the sins of the people, God was still ultimately gracious. Because God is a good God who is faithful to his promises. The first king of Israel, as I mentioned, was Saul. But he would be replaced in the following generation by King David. And through David came a line that would lead to the king of kings, Jesus. Even though God allowed for there to be a new king, he was always the one who was still ultimately sovereign, ultimately in charge. And he was the one who was sovereignly ruling and reigning in the world. For all eternity past, God had known what the Israelites were going to do. And he had already known how he was going to work through the sins of his people to bring about his kingdom. But that doesn't change the fact that it's God's desire for our obedience. And to properly worship him and put him in his proper place. And to acknowledge his proper place as the true king. We're to listen to his warnings. It's his will for us to put him first, to worship him alone, to place our trust in him alone. Don't look to earthly kings when we have a heavenly king. Because unlike earthly kings who sin and fail, our heavenly king is perfect. And he is just and he rules and reigns supreme over all of his creation. And it is that king who we must serve above all else. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your holy word. And that we are appointed to truth, Lord. And people don't change, Lord, throughout the generations that we are sinful. We can be just as stubborn, Lord. But may you work inside of us to make us people who worship and honor you, Lord. To follow and serve you. The true King. In Jesus' name, Amen.